Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, my friends. I'm so excited to tell you that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is now available for pre-order. You can go and do that now. The link will be in the show notes below. I would greatly appreciate each and every one of you if you could go and pre-order a copy right now. The book will be officially launched September 27th of this year, but you can go and pre-order a copy of the book right now. And I hope that you all consider doing that. All right. Let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Hey, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the Storybox podcast. If you are new to the show, my name is Jay Phantom, and I'm grateful that you guys have decided to show up today for a new and very insightful conversation. My guest today is evolutionary biologist, Dr. Herman Ponser. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, he is an evolutionary biologist, but he researches how our deep past shapes the way our bodies work today. Over the past 20 years, Dr. Ponza has conducted groundbreaking research across a range of settings, including pioneering field work where he lived with the Hadza hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania. The Hadza are considered one of the last hunter-gatherer tribes in the world and provide a unique insight into the way we used to live. In our conversation today, Dr. Herman Ponser and I, we discuss how we have this misunderstood idea of our metabolism, how we burn fats and how exercise isn't really the main form in the way that we can burn excess fat, which is pretty much the misunderstood uh, concept today. But Dr. Herman reveals his findings that despite the fact that Hudson of men and women get between five and 10 times more physical activity every day than most women in the US or around Europe, their total energy expenditure uh, and the amount of calories they burn is the exact same. 
and we discuss why that is the case during this conversation. Exercise does not increase our metabolism. Instead, we burn calories within a narrow range, nearly 3,000 calories per day for men and 2,400 calories for women. This is pretty much a deep dive conversation in how we have got the metabolism burning fats all wrong. And maybe you might disagree with Dr. Herman Ponser on this, and that is completely fine. You're more than welcome to do research into this. I listened to uh, an incredible conversation with my friend, and Simon Hill, he does. I'll link that in the show notes below uh, for an even deeper dive into the burning, uh, the way our bodies burn fats, you name it. It's a highly interesting conversation. But if you do get something from this conversation, my friends, and I hope that you do, please share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Don't forget to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, that little plus icon at the very top. It takes literally 10 seconds to do. That is if your, if your phone is really, really fast and your internet is quick as well. That all helps. Uh, but I really do appreciate you guys for turning, showing up today. Uh, don't forget my friends as well, that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is now available for pre-order. I'll link that in the show notes below. So make sure that before you go that you pre-order a copy if you want to learn what it takes to overcome and lead the very best life possible despite challenges that do come in your life. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me to the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Herman Ponza. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited for the conversation. I'm very excited for this conversation and your bio is a lot longer than what I just read out a moment ago, uh, which we will unpack further in this conversation, no doubt. Uh, but my very first question for you is a question that I love asking all my guests at the very, very start, which is, what does success look like for you? Oh, that's a great, that is the question, isn't it? Right. Cause if you don't know where you're heading, then, then how do you get there? For me, um, success has meant having enough, uh, sort of professional success and been, being given enough brain, uh, you know, to be able to, to do what I want to do and chase my own interests professionally, um, set my own schedule. Uh, and to have, you know, both the kind of time flexibility and as and, and enough, you know, financial flexibility to be able to do that. And so, you know, from that perspective, I feel my, I've been very successful because, uh, it's really hard to make it, make it go in academia. And so, you know, I've, I consider myself a pretty successful, uh, lucky, successful uh, person in that regard. Has that changed for you over time? Well, you know, I didn't really have a strong sense of where I wanted to go professionally or even in broader terms, uh, growing up. Um, and so it wasn't like, well, if I, I had to be a doctor and if I didn't do that, I was going to be unsuccessful or I had to be a professor, but that didn't happen. I was going to be unsuccessful. Um, as it got more clear to me what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to pursue in terms of research, um, doing science and teaching about it and writing about it, then, oh, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, then I want to be a professor. And if I'm going to be a professor, I want to get tenure. And then, you know, then, then you kind of figure out where you are and, and the, the structure you're in. Um, but it kind of developed, I've been following my nose, I think, you know, for most of my adult life, I've been lucky to have that uh, flexibility. So, yeah. So why biology? Why the interest in, I guess, evolutionary biology more specifically, because you, you're pretty much yeah. studying a broad range, right? You're studying. Human. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, 
I can't think of a more fundamental question. Uh, sort of how do we all get here and what's it all about? You know, people have been asking that question since they've been able to, to use language, I think, maybe before. Um, and I took a intro to human evolution seminar in undergraduate in university at Penn State, my first semester there. And man, it just pulled me out of my skin. You know, um, this I, the whole perspective of doing evolutionary biology or evolutionary anthropology and focusing on humans is to completely pull yourself out of yourself. Mm. And from a distance, ask, why is normal normal? Why is it normal that we've got walking around on two legs with naked skin and these big brains and using sound to communicate and having the abstract thoughts and, you know, what, why, why and how, uh, and that's just, I mean, that, that's the question, you know, um, it's, it's a way of asking about the meaning of life, but with maybe a more sort of articulated set of, of questions within it. Mm. Um, so man, once I, I realized that people did that for a living, I thought, Oh, that's for me. You, they're massive questions and you can spend pretty much your entire life trying to answer them, yeah, but yeah. do you have a better understanding now of where we came from, how we've evolved and why we have evolved into being, I guess, the kind of people that we are today? And is it a good thing that we've evolved into the kind of people that we are today? Yeah. Well, you know, um, so that's interesting. You use the word good. I don't know that science can tell us anything about morality, right? I mean, that's why you've got to have the ethicists on board and the humanities background on that too. Mm -hmm. um, I imagine any species thinks it's probably pretty good that it evolved, you know, those, <laughs> the most dangerous animal on the planet um, are probably pretty, if you, if they could be asked, would be happy to tell you that it's good they evolved, you know, um, where would all that malaria go if it weren't for mosquitoes, you know? Uh, <laughs> but uh, sure, no, I, I think I, I do have, a, you know, personally, I have a, have a better handle on it because I've been working on this my whole life. I think as a field, you know, um, we have a much better handle on it, even just over the last decade or so. You know, the, the research just keeps on accelerating. Um, and both from the fossils and the, the genetics and the kind of things I do, physiology and, and working with living populations around the globe and, and living other you know, non-human primates around the globe, I think we have such a more rich understanding of where we've come from. I'll say this, I think it's a hopeful story. You know, I think it's a really hopeful story where because what separates us, as I've come to appreciate it, from the other apes is how social we are, how much we share, um, you know, might doesn't always make right with humans. It does in a lot of other species, but for us, it's a lot more to do with building networks and building alliances and friendships, sharing what you've got. Uh, most other apes don't share. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of hopeful messages there that mm. I do think are good. Do you think, or do you agree with this idea that humans today have become, I guess, uh, detached in a way from other other people? Ah, maybe. Yeah. Well, I do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just as simple as you and me sitting here in our, in our buildings, right. Mm. Uh, we don't live outside anymore. And we used to, you know, I, I work with populations in, in Northern Tanzania and Northern Kenya and colleagues, colleagues and, and, and partnerships with pro, you know, projects all over the globe with people who still spend most of their life outside. <laughs> what a quaint idea. Um, even a couple of generations ago in the United States, you know, 70% of people were farmers. So you spent most of your day outside. Yeah. Today, 
I think you spend 90% of your time indoors. And even more than that, if you count cars and that kind of thing. Um, so absolutely, just even just physically, we're separated from the outside. And then forget about, you know, if you walk outside your door, can you name the trees? Mm. You know, not like Jim and Bob and Larry, but can you name the species, right? Can you name what, what can you name the, the birds? Can you name, what are the animals that are, you know, do you, most people don't know. Maybe you do, but most people don't. Um, much less paying attention to seasons and, and uh, so, you know, that, that kind of thing. Absolutely, we're detached. Now, it's a shame, I think. I think we lose a lot from that. I can only name the most annoying animals, <laughs> the <laughs> annoying birds. Yeah, um, sure. But it, this is a, probably another big question. Um, and we could spend a little bit of time trying to unpack it, but how does the human body really evolve is, does it, and how long does it normally take for us to go from one place to the next place and, and, and so forth? Mm. Well, um, evolution can kind of happen fast or slow, depending on how strong the pressures are to shape a species over time. Um, mostly it works really slowly. You know, um, if you were to hold hands, you know, with your mom and she to hold hands with hers and onward and onward and onward, right? Uh, as you kind of, and it's about a meter per generation, right? Mm. Let's say, well, how many meters until you're into the stone age? right? Not many. It's about mm -hmm. 25 years of a generation. So four generations per every century. So 40 per every thousand years, right? So uh, 400 per every 10,000 years. So 400, uh, I probably did the math wrong, but you see my point very quickly, you know, before you, you wouldn't be out of uh, Sydney, you wouldn't be at city limits before you're back to, you know, the early Paleolithic. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it's really slow because every one of those daughters and moms is the same species and, and recognizes each other as part of the same family. But you go back far enough, you know, you're probably not even 100 kilometers away and you're holding hands with something that looks like an ape. Right. So it's, it's mind blowing. In some ways, it's very slow. In some ways, it's very fast. Um, we know that we came from an ape like thing about seven million years ago. And for the first four million years, we're very ape-like. What's the only thing that's sort of human about those early ancestors is we're walking around on two legs, um, and the canine teeth are a bit smaller. If you know, notice chimpanzees, for example, have big canine teeth. Orangutans have big canine teeth. The males, especially. Um, but otherwise, you know, we're kind of walking around like two-legged apes. And then um, around two million years ago, two and a half million years ago, there's a real shift in the way that. Uh, hominins, and that's the catch-all for our ancestors and us too. We're all, it's all, it's a group of species. Hominins uh, change some of them, not all of them, some change the way they're getting their food. And it changes to a hunting and gathering strategy. Yeah. Um, and that's really where things take off. And then things accelerate actually quite rapidly over the last 2 million years and end up in this weird, sweaty, hairless, big-headed thing uh, like you and me. <laughs> Do we know exactly why it takes, say, for example, millions of years and then it speeds up rapidly? Or is that something that we still are trying to work? Yeah. On? So there's no there, there's no blanket answer for that for all species. You know, crocodiles have been the same for hundreds of millions of years, for example. Mm. Um, sharks have been the same since the Permian. There's a 300 million years. In our case, it, it, there's a, this, the process is always the same. When environments push hard on a species, 
And by push hard, we're saying there's a lot of a lot of individuals don't make it, don't grow up and don't have kids because they're not a good fit. You know, they they don't have the right uh, fit. Yeah, uh, we call it fitness. They don't, they're not, their bodies aren't the right physiology, whatever. It's not calibrated well to the environment. When the environment is pushing hard on you, uh, species tend to evolve quickly. Um, and so, or when a kind of a new opportunity, a new niche opens up and it's sort of a race to exploit that new niche, then, then you have rapid evolution that way. I think in humans, in our case, the niche that opened up was that hunting and gathering niche. It's there, you kind of hit on this behavioral change. And now it's such a winner because, you know, you sort of diversified your portfolio. You're not just getting plant foods anymore. Now you're also getting animal food. So it's this mix. Well, gosh, now no other species does this where half the individuals go off and get one kind of food, half the other get a different kind of food. And then it only works because you share, right? I like to, when I talk, teach this stuff, I like to point out to students, it's the, the magic of hunting and gathering isn't the hunting or the gathering. It's the and, right? It's the point of how you put it together. Well, now you can get these really nutritious, big game meals, but it's risky. You're not going to get that every day. And the reason you can afford to take the chance is that you've got plant foods every day, which are much more just, you know, dependable. Yeah. Um, and man, and then the only way to beat that. So think about what that is. That's now you've got to share. You've got to figure out how to get all kinds of different foods. You got to figure out the social element there. You got to figure out the, the foraging element. And there's a premium on smarts. Mm. Right. There's a premium on culture. There's a premium on behavior and 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 working together and cooperation and in evolution is just pushing hard, right, towards us, which is this big socially brained thing. And every generation, the ones who are more social, bigger brained, smarter, do a little bit better, and it just runs away, and you end up with us. If we look at the past and how our ancestors used to eat, and we look at I guess the the notion of apes and the way they ate, it, and even today, right? You can see apes; they eat predominantly a, a fruit and vegetable diet mm -hmm. in seasons. Uh, was that the same back then? And what can we learn about our diet today compared to the diet? This is probably a wide-ranging question. Yeah. Um, compared to back then, have we evolved to basically obese people? <laughs> Well, yeah. So that's, that's a great set of questions. It's one thing we worked on a lot in my group. I think it's a really fascinating question to ask. Um, the one thing I would note is that unlike all the other apes, I mean, there's so many things that set us apart, but one of the things I think is really important is um, we have the flexibility, both our bodies are flexible enough to do it and our minds are flexible enough to figure it out to be successful anywhere on the planet, right? There's no ecosystem that humans haven't figured out how to live in hardly at all. Um, and what that means is that diversity of, of ecosystem becomes a diversity of diet, right? And so there is no one way that humans eat, right? That's a, that's a red flag. Anybody who's trying to sell you a paleo diet, right? For example, there's two kinds of ways of thinking about paleo diets. One is, well, I want to get back to whole foods, non-processed stuff in the ways that my grandparents ate. And okay, that, I, I get that. I'm on board with that. Yeah. But there's another weirder version of paleo diet world that becomes, this is the one way that humans used to eat, right? Here's what was on the menu. And that's, that's not right. <laughs> because we know that when we look across cultures, even just in the recent past, and certainly in the archaeological record, 
Yeah, we eat everything that's around, you know, um, and it's usually a balance of, of plants and animal foods. Uh, and yeah, so that's that's what I would take from that is not that there's one way to eat, but that we're able to thrive on a lot of different diets. Why why is it that we look at uh, apes and past apes in terms of looking and seeing whether or not it is, I guess, comparative to humans? Why Why is that? Well, so, you know, just like if I want to understand where you come from, I might want to understand your family. Yeah. Right. Uh, or take my, my example. You know, I if I look at my refrigerator right now, it's um, full of mustard and pickles and beer and sauerkraut. And there's a reason for that. It's because I'm from a very German family in Western Pennsylvania. Right. So if you wanted to understand something about me behaviorally, where I'm from, the kind of foods I eat, it would be helpful for you to know that I'm German. And that there's a, a history there, right? Now, if you go to Germany today, those aren't my ancestors, okay? Of course they're not. They're, my ancestors lived 100 years ago in Germany. But they still hold on to some of the traits culturally that kind of shed light on me. And so what's interesting about my fridge isn't necessarily the mustard and the pickles and the beer. What's interesting is um, the, you know, the chicken stir fry that's there because... I'm married to a woman who was grew up in an Asian American household, mm. right? So that's what's changed in my cultural life is is these uh, is the addition of of Asian food. Kind of a silly example, but you get the point. So we want to understand humans, right? We want to understand the apes first because that's where we came from, and the stuff that we share with them. The fact that, for example, we don't have tails, right? Neither do the apes. Well, that's so. Then that's not something special about us. That's all apes are like that. Or the fact that we eat plant foods. Well, all apes eat plant foods. So that's, that's not something that changed. Um, but we hunt a lot. And other apes don't hunt much. Yeah, ch chimps will hunt monkeys a little bit, but nothing like we do. And so that's changed. Uh, our, cultural is, our cultural abilities have taken off, right? And so that's why we understand the apes, because that's where we're from. And that tells us sort of the, the stuff that we've evolved out of. And it gives us a baseline to compare ourselves. How about looking at say an ape's metabolism and their overall health, like the kind of diseases that humans have today, do apes have the same sort of diseases? Uh, apes don't have them in the wild and they don't even have them in the zoos as much. Um, apes do get a kind of heart disease in zoos, but they don't get the kind of heart disease we do. It's actually oh. ideologically a different disease. Um, but they do tell us about where we come from in terms of our metabolism. So humans, for example, one of the, th the things we've discovered in my work is that humans have an accelerated metabolism. We burn more calories per day, and not just because we're more active, but because of things like having a big brain that burns a lot of calories. Our bodies are just built to burn more calories a day than other apes are, right? So that tells us, okay, there's this baseline that apes are at, and we were accelerated from that. Well, that's a, there's a story there to understand then about how that evolution mm -hmm. happened. Um, and I think if the, the story about obesity today and where we understand that from that, how we understand that with apes as a reference point is this apes in a zoo, chimpanzees in a zoo are only about 10% body fat. Right. I mean, that's Olympic level stuff, mm. right. And unless you're either an Olympic athlete or malnourished. Right. Uh, so we've actually, you know, I work with hunter gatherer populations and farming populations and other traditional groups, even in those populations that aren't, they don't have obesity. But healthy men and women in those populations have, you know, in the teens of percentage of body fat for men and, and 20 some percent body fat for women. That's typical. It's normal. 
So that tells us, okay, humans are actually evolved to put on more fat than <laughs> apes are. Yeah, we're evolved to be to put on fat as that reserve. Maybe that goes hand in hand with the faster metabolism, right? Because it's kind of a reserve tank. You're going to burn the engine faster. You want a big reserve tank. Maybe it's part of that. Who knows? There's, we could we could try to understand that in different ways, but so that that's that's probably the interesting comparison there in terms of apes versus humans in terms of obesity. So why is it that I guess humans become obese in the first place? Is it because of majority of us being overindulgent in particular foods and just eating too much fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're eating too much. So it's a, it's, so here's what we know about obesity um, from my work and others. Uh, it's not a question of not burning enough calories. Cause actually when you look across populations, no matter how physically active or inactive populations are, they're all burning about the same number of calories a day. So your body's adjusting metabolism to keep that in a pretty narrow range. So it isn't that we're falling down in terms of calories burned. Instead, we must be falling down in terms of calories consumed. We're, we're messing that up. We're eating too much. And then the question becomes, why? And there's lots of ideas out there. Some people want to blame fats. People want to blame carbs, you know. Um, and I think the best evidence for this is uh, modern ultra-processed foods. These sort of overly engineered, focus group tested, literally engineered to be overeaten foods. Um, that just, they, they fool your brain, right? So your brain is really good about matching the calories you bring in and the calories you burn out. It's incredibly good at that, actually. It's a hard job to do, and, and we all do it incredibly well. But in modern food environments, a lot of us, mm, our brains get fooled and they make a mistake, a little mistake. We're talking less than a percent a day on average. Uh, and it tends to over, over consume. And what that does is you gain a couple pounds a year. And by the time you're 40 years old, you have a problem. Yeah. What are some of the cardiometabolic diseases that do affect a lot of people today? Is it more? Oh yeah. I mean, so from heart disease, diabetes to stroke, uh, kidney disease, those are in the kind of realm of cardiometabolic diseases. And all of those are exacerbated by obesity that yeah. you're much more likely to fall ill from any of those things. If you're, if you're obese or overweight, um, those are the number one killers in the, planet on the planet. It used to be a hundred years ago, we were dying from infectious disease mm. as, a, as a species. That's what will get you. Today, it doesn't matter if you're in a rich country or poor country, you're most likely to die from one of these yeah, cardiometabolic diseases. And that all came from obesity. Well, it's all from the same root problem of having poor diet. Uh, and an activity plays a role there for sure. Activity is important. Um, exercise is important for, for example, preventing heart disease helps prevent some cancers. Um, and so diet and exercise, you know, this sounds like the same old diet and exercise story. Yeah. The, the twist here, the important thing to understand is we used to, there, often it's talked about in terms of, well, it's, if you don't want to watch your diet, you can exercise more. You know, you can earn your donuts. <laughs> um, or if you don't want to exercise, you know, you just watch what you eat. And what we're learning is, no, 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 these are two different tools for two different jobs. Diet is your best lever to pull for weight loss or weight maintenance, I should say. And, um, and exercise is, is important for everything else. And that, you know, the diet and exercise combo is why groups like I work with, like the Hodds Hunter Gatherers in Northern Tanzania, they don't get heart disease. They don't have diabetes and they don't have obesity either. You know, and they're not, it's not because they're working hard to avoid these things, but they just have it woven into their lives, good food and, and, and good, uh, you know, daily activity. 
And I, I listened to your episode with Simon Hill and I, I heard you say that the life, uh, the rate of living for the people in the hard to tribe is a lot lower compared to people in the West, yet they don't have, say, heart disease, they don't have Alzheimer's, they don't have any of these major issues that we're suffering with today, yet we kind of live a little bit longer. And I, I was always curious, why is that? Like, if, can we narrow down the reasons to why, say, for example, the hearts don't live as long, yet they yeah. don't have all these diseases? Yeah, for sure. So that's a, often a kind of, yeah, it's difficult to reconcile. Um, two things. One is that, um, well, no, even we'll simplify it even further. The main thing is that you and I have access to antibiotics and vaccines. Really, it's, it's as simple as that. And so we've removed infectious disease as a major killer uh, in industrialized country. And that's, it, it's a, you know, the, they cut down people in, you know, places without good medical care, especially when you're, they're kids, right? Babies and, and young infants are the most vulnerable. Um, older folks are also really vulnerable to this, right? I mean, th- we know this. Yeah. The difference is that when, you know, I've got two little kids. When my kids were sick with a hundred and some degree fever, or th- sorry, 39 degree fever, uh, I could take them to a hospital and get them an antibiotic, right? Um, but you can't if you're in the hospital. So that's why your average life expectancy is low because you, you have to, adding up all of the ages that of people who died, there's so many children that it pulls the age down. Yeah. I think you're right with the the vaccines and hospitals and modern medicine. I think it's come a long way over the course of many, many years and learning about these diseases, yet we still haven't been able to find really a cure for Alzheimer's or I guess, Mm. do we have a a cure for diabetes or is that still on the cards too? I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) Yeah, Alzheimer's is tough. Uh, That's probably going to end up being you know, the, the prevention better than is better than a cure, although we still don't really have a great mechanism for it. So it's hard to know how to prevent it. But when we get there, I bet it's going to be a story about prevention rather than curing it. Yeah. Um, the, for diabetes, we have some good tools that work. And actually, there, for obesity in general, there's a whole new class of drugs uh, that seems to work really well. And I don't have any investments or anything like that. I'm not trying to sell anybody uh, any drugs at all. And it'd be better if we just didn't have the problem in the first place. Uh, but there's a new class of drugs uh, uh, that called GLP-1 uh, receptor agonists that, that people lose a lot of weight. And it seems to be pretty um, you know, comparable to sort of bariatric surgery levels of weight loss. So we're going to get there. Um, when is a good question, right? I mean, everybody always thinks it's going to happen tomorrow, but it's, we'll see. Hey friends, sorry to disturb you from listening to this amazing conversation, but I just wanted to let you know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down is now available for pre-orders. I'll make sure the link is in the show notes below. So if you do want to learn how to lead your life in the very best way possible and you love stories and you want to learn more about my story, the living roller coaster ride that it is, then go and pre-order a copy right now. The book will be uh, available everywhere books are sold September 27th. But but if you can go and pre-order it now, I would be so, so grateful. All right, my friends, let's get back into the incredible story. Yeah, it kind of feels like to me, you know, with all the technology and the modern medicine that we do have and the advancements that we've made over just a short period of time, you would think that maybe we 
were just around the corner from it or we'd, we'd yeah, be yeah. there. But I, I'm curious about the people of the, of the Hard to Tribe. I mean, they, they're living the way they've been living for goodness knows how long. Uh, if they do end up with some infectious diseases, are you able to help them in any way to heal them from those diseases? Yeah. I mean, we, when we're there, it's a partnership, you know, um, we're, uh, there first of all, it's a wonderful community of folks. Um, and we have always tried and people, researchers have been working with the Hadza for a long time, um, because it's, it's so rare of an opportunity to work with a hunting and gathering group. Um, and so, you know, we're not, we're not unique in this as a re, as researchers, there's other groups doing this too, but we have tried really hard to, to make it a two-way street, to make it a partnership. Um, we started a charity that people should know about. It's called the Hadza Fund, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D.org. And it's a charity registered here in the States. And, and we have um, Hadza partners as well. And, and it's a way that we try to get medical care. Uh, we run a, a bush ambulance <laughs> for the Hadza who are really sick and need to get out to hospital. There's really not a lot of good ways for them to do that. Um, and so we try to do that. And, and when we're there, of course, you know, in, in a Hadza camp, we do what we can to help. Um, but sure, yeah. But it's still, you know, that's when we can do it. And that's it's still it still is is hard for them, you know, to get as, as easy access to they can't they don't have as easy access as we do, of course, to any of that stuff. For those people that don't know who the Hadza are and what yeah. their lifestyle entails, would you be able to share some stories yeah. for us? Yeah, that's right. So the Hadza are a community. Uh, it, it's a it's a culture of um, hunter gatherers in northern Tanzania. So they live in the sort of open, arid savanna landscape. Lots of acacia trees. Um, it's a really intact ecosystem. You've got elephant and lion and uh, antelope and everything else out there. And they don't have any crops or any domesticated animals or anything like that. They they hunt and gather wild foods off the land, like they've been doing for. Like you say, we don't know how long, thousands of years, perhaps. Uh, and the men hunt with bow and arrow. They make themselves. Um, they also, they have sort of small axes, axes or sort of hatchet size axes that they'll use to chop into trees to get wild honey. That's another big thing that they eat is, is honey. Uh, women will gather plant foods, um, like wild root vegetables, uh, berries, that kind of stuff. And yeah, there's, you know, no electricity, no, no running water, nothing like that. They live in grass houses in the middle of the savannah. And how many times have you actually been there and lived with them? Oh, a half dozen times, I suppose, something like that over the last decade or so. Has it been that many? Um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You, I, I, I go with Brian Wood. Who's a, what's that now? Have you been invited to go hunting? Yeah, we, we've gone on, on, um, just one of the things that we often do when we're there. So I work with Brian Wood, uh, who's at UCLA now. He's, he's probably spent more time in a Hadza camp than in his own house <laughs> the last <laughs> uh, two decades. Um, he's a real, a real Hadza expert. Uh, and Dave Reichlin as well. He's another physiologist like myself. Um, but yeah, when we're out there and we're not in camp doing some kind of physiological measurements, like we'll do, you know, blood pressure monitoring or, you know, that kind of thing. But if we have, if we're not doing that that day, then yeah, we go out and, and follow a, either follow uh, the women out gathering. We follow one of the men out hunting and it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot of walking <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, you see, you see a lot of country uh, and it's just, yeah. It's just really special, you know, and, and they're so generous and wonderful to, 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 to invite us in and, and, and work with us like that. But it's uh it's really special. Yeah. Are you game enough to eat their food too? 
Yeah. I mean, we don't make a habit of it. We don't sort of, you know, depend on them or anything like that. We don't want to mess up. This is the, the, the tension of doing any anthropology in this sort of context. You want to be there. You want to see it. You want to kind of embed, but you don't want to muck things up, right? You want to see it as it would be if you weren't there. Of course, you know, it can't ever really be like that. You're always going to be there, uh, but you do the best you can. So, um, but sure, I've tried, you know, I've tried zebra and I've tried uh, warthog and I've tried that kind of thing. And of course, all the plant foods we've given to try and, and um, the honey is amazing. Uh, but yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, it can get pretty interesting. Their, their level of, you know, of what's cooked is not the same as my level of what's cooked. <laughs> but that's okay. Medium rare. Some, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You kind of, kind of, kind of like got to be a fly on the wall almost. In that's the idea. I mean, you, you don't fool yourself. You know that just by being there, you change things like anything else. You know, but uh, you know, we a couple of things to think about. It's not like they're trapped in amber either. They know about the outside world. You know, it's, um, I'm not sure if there's an equivalent in um, with any of the the, you know, the Aboriginal communities in Australia. Uh, but in the U.S., for example, we have communities of Amish and Mennonite farmers yeah. who are still farming the same way that they were in the 1500s, sorry, 1600s when they first got here. Uh, and of course, there's been changes. And of course, they know about the outside world. But, you know, they're still riding horse and buggy around and farming with, you know, with uh, livestock. And, and uh, so it's, it's that kind of a thing. They're, they're proud of their traditions. They hold on to them while the world changes around them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not, you're not kind of telling them anything they don't, they don't know when you sort of show up and say, Oh, look, you know, tell them about the outside world or show them a computer or something like that. They've seen all that stuff. Do you ever think that the hard to drive would ever become sort of more modern or do you think they'd just stay the way they are? No, I, I think they will. It'll slowly change. Even in the last 10 years that I've been going there, I've seen changes, you know, uh, it's, the villages are encroaching more into the land, but there's other, there's other tribal groups there that um, some that, for example, have, do have herds of cattle. You see more of them encroaching. Um, and, you know, and, that, and that's, they're just doing their best as well. Everybody's kind of doing their best to make things work for them and their families. And I, but it's, it's interesting to see things change. Um, so, yeah, I, I would love to think that they'll hold on forever, you know, but it, realistically, no, at some point, broad scale, yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna end, and they'll end up. Um, I don't know. I'm, there, that story's been written, and it's a tragedy. Almost everywhere else, it's been written. The Native American groups here in the states, they were hunting and gathering too, and we put them on reservations, and we totally ruined a lot of their cultures and, and stole cultures, stole land for sure. Um, and that story is a, a pretty sad one. Uh, in Australia, I know you guys have had your own issues culturally and in that interaction. Um, and you know, I think the Hadza and a few other pockets of of places where people are still living off the land, um, and haven't been moved to villages yet. I think we have the chance to write that future in right of the way we'd like it to be written. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so we'll see, I, I hope we can do it, do right by the Hadza. Not we, it won't be up to me, but as a, as a species, I hope we can get it right that we treat everybody well and, and make that happen in a better way than has happened traditionally. I think there's definitely a lot of positives that do come with being more modern, but I also happen to believe that the way things have been done for them have worked for a, a long yeah. time. They seem to be happy with it. So 
I guess it's just being cautious of of them and as a people and not making the same mistakes that we've made in the past. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. In other tribes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But um, how have the Hadza people taught you about the misunderstood nature of our metabolism? Oh, well, that's one of the most fun pieces of the, the, the uh, research I've done the last 10 years, at least. So uh, I started working out there in 2009 and 10 uh, with Brian Wood, like I said, and Dave Reichland. And the whole goal was to measure how many calories a day you burn. Very simple question, right? How many calories do you burn every day if you're a hunter-gatherer? Mm-hmm. And nobody had ever measured humans in a hunting and gathering community before. And it's a really critical piece of information because we were all hunting and gathering. Everybody on the planet was hunting and gathering just a few thousand years ago. And so that's the way that we've evolved. And that's so that's how, that's the context you want to understand our species. Great. So we finally got funding to go do it. And we were sure because the Hadza are so incredibly active. And you know, they get women get 13,000 steps a day on average, men get 19,000 steps a day on average. It's a ton of activity. Of course, they're going to burn tons more calories. We just want to know how many more. You know, what, what was the deficit between us in here in the in the industrialized world and them? And so we went out there with all the latest kit and the best ways to measure energy expenditures. We use isotope tracking techniques that measure it for a week. You know, total a- average energy expenditure over the course of a week in thirty men and women in the Hadza community. Got the data back. We it's, it's a kind of you get urine samples. You have to analyze the urine samples. We had to get all the data back home, back to the state, send it to a lab, got all the data back. And we were shocked to learn that it's the same as you and me, right? They're, these guys are incredibly active. They get more activity in a day than most Americans get in a week. And yet, total calories a day, indistinguishable between Hadza men and women and, and folks here in the US and other industrialized parts of the world. So that was a total mind blower. That was like, what the hell's, oh, how, how, do we, how do we misunderstand it so badly <laughs> that we could be this surprised, right? Obviously we were just completely wrong about how uh, metabolism really works. Why have we been wrong? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I've been trying to untangle that in the last 10 years or so. And, and so the story is, continues to be written, but here's what we know so far. One is uh, the reason that we were so sure that activity must be kind of driving the bus here with energy expenditure is that people had just always been estimating energy expenditures from activity, right? We didn't actually have a good way to measure energy expenditures in, you know, outside of a laboratory until just a couple of decades ago. You know, these isotope tracking techniques are really the only way to do it. And they, those methods weren't available. And so people knew from laboratory studies that walking and running and other activities cost energy. Mm-hmm. And so they assumed that, well, okay, well then if I know how active you are, I can just kind of add up all the sums of, of how many hours you spent walking, running, whatever. And I add it all up and that's your calorie expenditure. And there was no way to prove them wrong because nobody had done the measurements. Um, and the other thing is, I think a lot of the work in metabolism Metabolism came out of you know a kind of perspective, which is you know has gotten made so many big advances in medicine, but doesn't think about humans the way that I do. I was trained to think about humans as evolved you know evolved organisms, and evolution can be tricky. And you expect evolution to be tricky because evolution doesn't care about having a you know a bikini ready body for the beach. <laughs> or even really necessarily about being particularly healthy. Evolution cares about having kids, mm. right? And so you would expect an evolved organism to be very clever about how it burns its calories. And 
you know, and, and to be dynamic in the way it responds to lifestyle and activity. Okay, so now let's back up a second and ask, how do we understand the Hodge results then? And that's what I think we come down to, it, that it isn't just activity driving the bus, that instead the body's being adaptive, being clever, and, uh, and that's how you can have this seemingly impossible situation where these really active people have the same expenditures as really sedentary people because they're spending their calories differently. More on activity, but less on other stuff, and it keeps the total numbers the same. I wasn't that long ago that we actually had someone, I forgot who it was, who created the calorie. And oh, yeah. then it's just been this massive thing in the health and fitness space where everyone's like calories in versus calories out. You know, you got 20% versus 80%. They say 80% is diet, what you eat, 20% is exercise, that sort of thing. And you've got these studies of people that have done uh they've been on sort of a healthy diet and they've also reduced the amount of exercise they've done they've still lost weight then you got the other people that have increased the amount of exercise they've done and then just continue to eat the same rubbish and they haven't really lost as much weight and they feel 10 times worse as a result (laughs) you got all those studies done but it seems like i guess there's been a, a miscommunication somewhere about the calorie and what it actually is, like energy expenditure, all that sort of stuff, which is another reason why I stopped tracking calories because firstly, I got sick of it. And secondly, it just didn't match up for me. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's really hard to track calories in, first of all, people even well-intentioned and and well-informed folks have a hard time tracking the calories you eat. Uh, It's just really hard to know. Um, because the food, you know, the, the packaging label might be off by quite a bit compared to what's on the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, if people digest foods a little bit better or worse, so there's that. But then on the energy that you burn, good luck, right? <laughs> I mean, how would you know how many calories you burn? If you're not in a study, the kind of study that we run, um, I can tell you, you'd just be guessing, right? And so I think that's, you know, I think moving away from counting calories, I, I understand that. And it makes sense to me um, as a strategy because it should, it can be really a f- kind of feel like a fool's errand to try to keep track of them. It still is, and fundamentally, physics is still right, <laughs> you know. And every calorie worth of fat that you've got on your body is a calorie that you ate. I mean, that's that is just true. Um, but yeah, keeping track of the accounting on that can be is not worth your time. It's better to focus on the foods that you, the kind of quality of foods you eat. You should be active anyway. That's the way to go, I think. So exercise is still important in terms Absolutely. of healthy yeah. lifestyle yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, all the adjustments your body's making that kind of keeps your body burning the same number of calories if you're really active or not, those adjustments are probably part of the reason exercise is so good for you. You're burning less on stuff you shouldn't be burning on anyway, like inflammation, right? Stress reaction. Um, we know that people who exercise a lot have lower inflammation levels. They don't react to stress as strongly. Right, their heart rates don't go up as high and they don't they come back down faster, for example. Your body's saving energy these, in these ways um, if you're uh, someone who exercises a lot. And we think that that's kind of basically that, that's the mechanism by which your body adjusts. And these are all healthy things. Um, so, yeah, exercise is essential. Be really clear about that. But it doesn't work the way you think it does. I guess you could have those people that would say, look, Herman, you've said that people such as the hard to drive, the men are doing 19,000 steps a day. I'm doing that in my life and 
Meanwhile, we're just burning pretty much the same amount of calories. So what's the point? What's the point in me actually exercising? Should I just remain on the couch and continue to burn yeah. the same amount as these active people? What would you say to those sort of skeptics? I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say, uh, you've got, you're misunderstanding <laughs> how this works. Um, you know, your, your exercise is the rhythm section of this vast orchestra that is your body, 37 trillion cells at work all day. And if you don't have physical activity and your muscles burning energy, pulling in nutrients, burning it up, if you've got all the other systems sort of flush with energy, actually burning all your energy, that's bad. <laughs> There's no rhythm section. You get out of sync. Uh, and you're going to get sick. And we know this. We know that from countless epidemiological studies, from randomized control trials, whatever level of evidence you'd like, if you don't exercise, if you don't, if you're not physically active all, you know, every day, as much as you can be, you're going to get sick. You're going to be much more likely to get heart disease, diabetes, all that stuff. So exercise is still essential. It doesn't change it at all. But I think what's neat about the work that we're doing is it kind of helps us understand why. And it's not the why that we've been told before, actually. And that's interesting. As a scientist, that's critical because the way things work and how they work, that's, you know, that's, that's where the gold is, right? That's where you're trying to figure out what's going on and how things work. You know, that's, that's the most fundamental kind of question you can ask in biology. How about for those people with, that look at sort of DNA and body type? Do they matter as much? Uh, so some of it's genetic. Yeah. So uh, we know that, for example, your likelihood of becoming overweight or obese, it's it was what we'd call heritable. It runs in families, right? It's, it's, it is partly your genetics. Um, here's what's interesting. We can go a bit further. We can actually say, where are those genes most active? We can, we can, people have found about, I think it's close to a thousand genes now where, you know, if you have this variant of the gene or that variant of the gene, you're more or less likely to have struggle with your weight. Um, and each one has tiny effects. No allele is, is that important, but you know, no gene is that important, but you know, 900 of them, if you get a bunch of bad cards, then that's, you have a hard time. If you get a bunch of good, yeah. anyway, that's how it works. The genes kind of all add up. All right. They've tracked down where these genes are active. Uh, would you care to guess what tissues in your body, what organs in your body, these genes have, that, that make you likely to become obese are most active? Uh, let me guess stomach. Being makes sense, that. right? That's where you, all the food goes. Nope, it's your brain. Huh. Every one of the genes, hundreds, that's been associated, figured out you know, what tissues is it most active. They're most active in your brain, right? And that's why people are driven to overeat. And it's not that there's it's not a willpower issue, right? It's that again, that that mechanism, it's below your conscious level, that's matching intake and expenditure, right? That all that hardwiring is in your brain. And um and if you have, if you're just wired a little bit different, you know, that reward versus you know, feeling full, that system is going to just be a little tilted. And in this weird food environment that we built for ourselves with all this crazy food that you can eat, that's so delicious and it doesn't ever make you feel full, mm. you're going to struggle. Yeah. So you can fix, you can, you can't fix what's in the world around us too much, but you can fix what's in your, in your cupboards at home. Uh, you can kind of fix what you can in your local environment. That's, that's, I think the best we can do. I've heard you talk about how not including certain foods in your home as a way not to eat it, <laughs> which I yeah. like. I actually employ that, that tactic at home too. 
So yeah, yeah. Don't, don't include ice cream at home, even though you love the stuff. Just yeah, all, all those things that are very, very important in your weekly shop, not to include certain food groups. <laughs> And you won't eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. You know, and it's it's hard to supermarkets are built to wear you down. They put you in the healthy part of the supermarket first. Yeah. Right. You get to walk through the veg and you're making all these decisions about which ones you want, which ones you want, which ones you want. And you got and then you're feeling good about yourself too, because you've got healthy food. And then you get to the end of the store and it's all the ice cream aisle. Mm. And your your brain is tired of making decisions. It's called decision fatigue. And you're feeling good about yourself because you've got vegetables in the cart. So boom, right? You get the ice cream. They're not stupid. They know what they're doing. So is it, is it okay? I'm, I'm mindful of your time, Herman. I, I want to be respectful of it. I've got a couple more questions for you. So yeah. is it in terms of when choosing the right kind of diet and, and the food groups, is it more acceptable to say that we should decrease the amount of food groups that we have on any given day? like the Hadza have, or is, should we have more? That's interesting. I would say the best rule of thumb to take with you to the supermarket is this. Avoid overly processed foods. If it has, if it has an advertising campaign associated with it, <laughs> it's probably not great. <laughs> if it comes in a shiny package, it's probably not the best. Um, that's thing one. Thing two is, uh, High protein and high fiber foods tend to be the most filling. There's a woman named Susan Holt, actually, who's a, an Australian researcher, has done a great work on this. Uh, she, you know, you feed somebody the same amount of calories from different kinds of foods, and you ask who, you know, you ask them an hour later, do you feel full or do you feel hungry now? And you're most likely to feel full on foods that have high fiber contents and high protein contents, and you're least likely to feel full. In other words, you're most likely to feel hungry again if you've had, uh, you know, baked goods or, um, you know, sweet processed food kind of stuff, the junky stuff, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, there's different ways to do that. You could go high protein. Um, people go like high, low carb diets. Sometimes that works for people. That's great. Some people go plant-based and ends up being more high carb, more fire, whole foods, fiber-based foods. There's a lot of ways to get there. Um, but yeah, avoid the, avoid the package stuff if you can. Should we eat for weight loss, weight management, weight gain as well? Mm. What should we be eating for? Or just overall health? Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on where you're at. If you are at a, at a, at a weight that's really unhealthy for you, I mean, BMI and your weight, it's just a number. It's, it's only one data point in how healthy you are overall. I don't want to over, overstate it, but it is true that if you have obesity, you're much more likely to develop other diseases down the stream. So in that case, you probably ought to try to find a diet that you could lose a little bit of weight. I and mean, that would be a good idea. Mm. Um, but if you're in a healthy weight, then, then eat for weight maintenance, right? So I think it depends on where you're at. Um, and you never want to sacrifice, you know, healthy, nutritious foods, just, you know, to, to, to be able to lose weight quickly, that kind of thing. I wouldn't I'd advise against that. Yeah. I'm not a dietitian. I should say that I'm an evolutionary biologist, right? So if you're getting your diet from an evolutionary biologist right now, but that's, that's what I understand. And you got all these, I guess, diets out there. You got paleo, you got keto, you've yeah. got vegan, you got carnivore, you got all these ones. I can't keep up to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, just yeah. Eat for overall health. I, I, I was curious in terms of the BMI construct, what's the safe BMI level? Uh I mean, there's no, 
it's, you know, somebody who's got a lot of muscle, for example, and low body fat will have a BMI that makes them look like, you know, the, the same weight person who's more fat than, than muscle. So it gets hard to say this one data point that this one threshold is going to work for the same for everybody. But, you know, if your BMI is over 30, especially if it's over 35, then you should have a long, hard think about if you're at a healthy place right now. Yeah. Um, and again, it is only one data point. There are other aspects of health that are important. Fitness is super important. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the totality of things. And that's a really important one to, to look at. Yeah. Two final quick, quick questions for you. Yeah, sure. Um, where, firstly, before I ask them, where do you want people to find you, connect with you, buy a new book, all those wonderful things? Well, they should buy Burn if they can, of course. <laughs> uh, and that's, you can get that on anywhere you buy books. I mean, it's on Amazon, but it's, it's other places too. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Herman Ponser if you want to check me out there. Uh, if you want to look, go to the, you know, my lab at Duke University, you can search us up pretty easy on the web that way and see what's on uh, research-wise these days. Um, yeah, I think that's the, probably the best way to do it. I bought my copy of Burn a few weeks ago, by the way, and it still hasn't arrived. I think oh, no. issues, yeah, low stock, the whole thing. I'm like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, low stock's promising. That means here. everybody's buying copies. <laughs> yeah, which is a good thing for you, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you want people to buy copies of your book. Of um, course, I'd love it. I lo I've loved this conversation, Herman, but th this is a question uh, for the end. Uh, but what do you love the most about yourself and your story? Hmm. What do I love the most about myself? Uh, I'm not sure I can be outside myself enough to answer that question very well. <laughs> All right, here's an answer. Um, what I love about myself is that I have kept true to what I think is important. You know, I haven't felt need to kind of compromise on things that were important to me. And that's, you know, the kind of the sort of values you internalize growing up in a small town, you know, I, I've held on to a lot of that. And, and I'm, I'm proud of that. The stuff I learned from my parents, I've, I've held on to that in friends. And, um, and I don't feel like I've had to, to sort of compromise or sacrifice, you know, yeah, the values that are really important to me. Um, I'll say that. Mm, I love that answer. This is my all-time favorite question. I ask all my guests at the very end. It is yeah. a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100, you've been able mm. to study everything that you want, but your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how <laughs> in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do yeah. you want that film to say and to show about your life? Wow. I want it to show that I've been curious and creative and I've, I've made contributions. You know, I want to leave this world with footprints and fingerprints, you know, here uh, in terms of books and papers and, uh, I like to build, I have a wood shop. I like to build stuff. You know, I, I love to create. And I think that that's what we all owe our, each other and ourselves is to get whatever that's inside of you and to get it out. And for me personally, as a scientist, I want to be 
doing that in, in a curious and creative way that, that takes ideas in new places and takes you know, the research in new places. That's going to be the measure of my success. You asked me earlier about success, but that's, that's going to be the measure of my success. Did I, did I see the openings? Did I figure it out? Was I smart enough to understand where to go next? Um, and I, I hope we have, I, you know, it's, it's been feeling pretty fun and pretty good so far. So hopefully we can keep it up and yeah, that'd be great. It's a great send off message for people. Dr. Herman Ponza, thank you so much sir, for this great wide ranging, wide informative conversation. I've loved every single moment of it, learned a lot, but thank you so much for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you. It was really fun. really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.